My greetings from the saints at Evergreen. It's good to be here once again with you all worshiping and uh, being reminded of all these great songs of the Reformation period. Uh, I didn't actually know about Calvin as the author of that one, so that's exciting to me. Um, this evening, our scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. I'm sad to say it's not a Reformation theme, but it is biblical, which is a Reformation theme. So uh, I don't know if you stand for the reading of God's Word here, but would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Indulge me a bit. Um, hear now the Word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest? In the kingdom of heaven. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you once again, would you provide what our hearts need most through your word this evening? Would you grant us your spirit? to help us so that we do understand your scriptures, but not only that we understand them, but that we are changed by them. You alone can do this. We do not have the power within ourselves. And so we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As a teenager, I was an atheist. I was an atheist probably from the age of 13 to age 16 or 17, probably 17. Uh, I, I did not believe in God at all. I was raised to believe that God was real. I was raised to believe that the scriptures were true. Uh, I was sent to Sunday school. And in Sunday school, they taught me the big stories in the Bible and they skipped over the little stories. So they taught me about David and Goliath. They did not teach me about the cleanliness laws in the book of Leviticus. Uh, and so there were massive, massive swaths of the Bible that I just didn't know for myself, that I had not read for myself. Uh, I assumed that my Sunday school teachers were giving me what I needed to know. And so as an atheist, I had a lot of assumptions about the Gospels and about the Bible. And one of my assumptions that I had when I was reading the scripture, or actually when I imagined the scriptures, was what I did when I was an unbeliever, I assumed this. I assumed that the writers of the Gospels were interested in accruing power and authority for themselves, and I assumed that the Gospels were written as a power play by some mysterious perhaps unseen group, who basically said, hey, see Jesus here? You respect Jesus, don't you? Well, you should respect and listen to us as well. And so my assumption was that that's what the authors of the Gospels, whoever they might have been, that's what they were up to. And so my assumption is in the Gospels, Jesus comes out the hero, and so do the apostles. And that assumption was wrong because 
You see, I, I didn't get this belief from reading the Bible. I did not study the Bible deeply. I didn't study it hard. I wasn't trying. Instead, I had decided I did not want the Bible to be true. And so I made assumptions about the Bible. Those were very convenient assumptions. But around the ages of age of 16 or 17, although it's a larger story, uh, one thing that I started to do was rethink my assumptions and I decided to give the Bible a more careful look. And, and as I did that, I started to see places where the apostles actually don't look very heroic at all. And they actually start to look kind of desperate and kind of sad at times. Um, the sort of passages that you, you look at and you say, you know, author, you didn't have to include that. Um, you know, just sort of embarrassing things. There are sections where the apostles don't understand Jesus, where they don't understand what Jesus is doing, where they make fools of themselves. They put their feet in their mouths. And you have passages like this one. And reading this passage, again, as a, as a young atheist, trying desperately to hold on to my atheism, I remember really changing my mind and, and realizing that I had assumed wrongly when it came to the motivation of the authors of the Gospels. Here was why. Because if you pay attention to this, this book just does not bear the hallmarks of somebody who's making up a story so you will like them more. Um, instead, it bears a different kind of mark. It bears the mark of someone who was there and wants you to know what happened, and they don't really care if you end up thinking badly of them at the end of the day. That's what, that's what the Gospels bear. In other words, the Gospels bear marks of authenticity and truth. This passage today is a case in point, right? Because it, it leads off with this desperate kind of pathetic question from the disciples, the sort of moment where you think, you know, everyone would have liked you more if you had not said the quiet part out loud. Um, the sort of thing that you would not write unless it actually took place. There's no rational explanation for putting it in. And so there's a hard lesson that Jesus has for us, that he has for his disciples when it comes to greatness in the kingdom of God. Uh, the first is, and I would just want to do this with three points because this is a sermon. Um, first is a selfish question. Second, a childlike answer. And then third, a stern warning. Uh, first, we have a selfish question. And, and as I say, it's a rather embarrassing question, especially if you know the background uh, if you look at verse 1, it just simply says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which seems a little bit innocent. It seems like a perfectly reasonable question. But if you look at Mark's gospel, Mark's, Mark's gospel augments this just a bit. He includes a, a bit of background to this conversation. Mark shows us that actually the question comes about because of a conversation, a prior conversation the disciples were having. And it said, Mark says that they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. So you actually have two debates going on here. You have, is there a such thing as the greatest? And then you have the question, who is the greatest? And so this question comes from this assumption. There, there's some kind of hierarchy among the disciples, or at least some gradation of importance. Surely one of them is more important, more influential than all the others. Ultimately, they're not asking Jesus to satisfy their curiosity. They want him to settle an argument. Um, and as a sinner, if Jesus was around, I would have him settle lots of arguments for me. 
In fact, it's amazing that they don't ask him to settle more arguments. Um, but there are all these layers of selfishness and ambition here that are going on. But what you see, I think, pinpoints the problem of ambition so far. And the thing that I actually want to say, and the thing that I, I think needs to be said, is that as Christian ministers, sometimes we can make it seem like ambition is a bad thing, as though ambition itself is wrong. In itself, ambition is a drive to do or achieve something. And when it aims at something that is good, specifically God and his glory, ambition is a good thing. I'll give you a biblical example. You have Paul in Romans 15, 20, and he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. And so in this passage right here, right, uh, Paul is talking about ambition as something that can be channeled, that can be harnessed and can be used for the glory of God and for the spread of the gospel. So, so just as we're thinking about ambition, I want you to see that ambition itself is not wrong if it has its end in the good of others and the glory of God. One of the things that we need to say is that the world needs more ambitious Christians, that the world needs Christians who aren't passive, that the world needs Christians who aren't simply going to let life happen to them, but instead followers of Jesus who are eager to do what they can to be useful to God and useful to his kingdom, saints who are proactive, saints who are thoughtful about the way that they approach life. And that's going to be look different in everybody's case, but it's a good thing to do if you plan to use it in order to glorify God. And that doesn't mean everybody out there is uh, biblically ambitious as long as they go off to seminary or as long as they go to the mission field, and that everybody else who works in private industry or has a job and takes care of a family or has a business that they own, that as if they are not doing this, because the reality is everybody in all of their lives are called to glorify God. Whether you have a secular job where you aren't specifically doing things for churches or things like that, um, you know, you have a business owner that wants to seek to expand what they do so they can hire more employees, so they can take care of more people, so their families can be provided for. They want to run an honest business. Or the Christian who maybe they don't own their business, but they want a promotion at their job. Or they want to get an advanced degree so that they can provide better for their family and live as a faithful Christian in everyday life. Christians can come from all walks of life, but what I want to say is that the world needs more people like this who are seeking to better themselves so they can better God, so they can better others, and so they can glorify God in their lives. Now, one of the things in my life is I tend to be reactionary. I hate, and I don't mind using the word hate. I, I don't like using the word hate a lot. I teach my kids not to say that word because usually what they hate is other people or each other. But I don't feel bad saying this. I hate the prosperity gospel. Uh, I hate the Word of Faith movement. I, I hate it so much that I react usually by preaching a message of contentment and poverty. I want to preach the opposite of what the Word of Faith movement, movement preaches. And we should be content, whatever our circumstance. So I'm not undoing all of the calls to contentment that Scripture gives us. Um, but here's the thing. It is very easy for us to be so eager not to sound like health and wealth prosperity churches, 
that we swing the other way and we make people feel guilty for doing well. Um, or we make people feel guilty for seeking to advance their education or seeking to be useful to the world in various ways. Many Christians are sorely lacking in ambition and are actually very passive, and they actually may need this, this other encouragement to go the other way, this encouragement to be prodded, to forge ahead, and to be more driven and less passive. And in fact, that may be the greater need of the moment. It is very possible for ambition to use, be used well. Christian charity and generosity are enabled by people like that. Um, a lot of seminary students are able to go to seminary because generous people who are ambitious help finance them being able to go to seminary. Um, I was just st- talking a little bit uh, earlier to Brian about the fact that my daughter is going to college and she has a scholarship that's for preacher's kids. And somebody out there was ambitious and they took what they earned and they, and they gave it to God's kingdom. And it was because they were ambitious and they used those things for the glory of God and to bless, a, in this case, a pastor's family, right? I don't want to belabor it anymore. There are ways that ambition can be good. But um, the reality is, though, if we're driven by a desire to be useful to people, to God, to his kingdom, to his work, then that is healthy. But there is a such thing as sinful ambition, and that's usually what we think of when we think of ambition. Uh, Four times the New Testament addresses ambition. It always condemns selfish ambition. That is the phrase that you see in the text. Um, In one place, Paul, in Philippians 1, Paul uh, accuses false prophets of proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. Uh, He tells Christians in Philippians 2 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, If you look at in James's epistle, he says that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So, So there you see that danger of selfish ambition. He also says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so, I want you to see that that modifier, selfish, is very important. Uh, The New Testament is consistent about condemning selfish ambition, ambition that terminates ultimately in the self instead of in God, ambition that is geared toward the service of the self instead of God and his gospel and his people. And so let me press you, Christian, toward being ambitious but being ambitious about the right things and having the right ends and the right aims that you would aim at God and his glory and the good of others. Uh, Matthew 6, says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. And so, you know, Jesus is telling us that the fruits of our ambition should rest with God and his will. But the work is something that we should plan and we should strive for with God, not things or power as the goal. The problem in this passage today is that this question of the disciples comes from selfish ambition. Here is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, we will believe that God is out to make much of us. We, we, can think, we can think that we're more significant than others, or in worst case, we start to think that our priorities are more significant than God's priorities. 
We start to realize we're slipping towards sinful ambition. We stop asking, what would the Lord want? Instead, we ask the question, what do I want? These sort of things are symptomatic of selfish ambition. And so in reality, our purpose in life is to make much of God. And if we turn that upside down, and if we live as if it is not a God-centered universe, but it's a me-centered universe, then we will find ourselves living in the throes of selfish ambition. And all of that is why I call this first point a selfish question. Now, second, Jesus gives a childlike answer. He responds in verse 2 and verse 3, and here's what he does. It says, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, You know, isn't this interesting? In verse 3, Jesus doesn't begin by talking about greatness in the kingdom. He's just talking about entering the kingdom. Like, they want to talk about greatness. They want to talk about greatness. And, and Jesus says, slow your roll. Let's get more basic than that. Jesus begins with something more important than grace, greatness. He says, you need conversion first. You see that when Jesus says, unless you turn, right? That, that phrase, turn, it's another word for conversion, repentance, heart change. You must be converted. He is He's getting so fundamental. In fact, the disciples have probably heard these kind of things from Jesus so often, this call to repentance, this call to turn, that this might seem like he's sort of dropping something on them that they've heard hundreds of times before. But before you can be great in the kingdom, Jesus is saying, you must be born again. You must be given a new heart by the Holy Spirit. Before you can even think about being great in the kingdom, you must be in the kingdom. How do we do that? Well, we don't, uh, right? Because it's simple and it's difficult. Uh, on the one hand, conversion isn't just difficult, it's impossible. It's something that we can't achieve for ourselves. It's something we can't do to ourselves. We can't will it for ourselves. Uh, we are totally dependent on the work of God in our own hearts so that we can even do this thing that Jesus is talking about. That's why Jesus says in the Gospel of John, it's the Spirit who gives life. So don't hear me saying at all that this is something that we ought to do for ourselves. Jesus calls us to repent. He calls us to turn. He calls us to be converted. And there is a choice that we end up making, but the, re- the question is, why do we make the choice? And the answer he gives us, and the answer of the scripture is, it's the Spirit who gives life. To come to Jesus means being humble. It involves admitting things about ourselves that we would rather not admit. Just a, just a little bit ago, we sang the Ten Commandments. And when you sing the Ten Commandments or you read the Ten Commandments or you spend any time at all studying the Ten Commandments, I think all of us come away thinking of all the ways we haven't kept the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, to, to repent, to come to Christ means being humbled and saying things about ourselves that we wish weren't true. Are you resistant to admitting hard things about yourselves? Are you slow to admit your sins? Are you slow to accept blame? Are you defensive if someone confronts you? Listen to Jesus. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Will you become like a child? Would you, would you come to God in your need? Would you come to him with empty hands? Would you hand them over to God? Would you hold them out to him? 
and admit that you need Jesus. You admit what Jesus needs and you admit that you have nothing of your own. Now, there are obstacles to kingdom greatness, this kingdom, this childlike greatness that Jesus talks about, things that threaten the humble simplicity of childlike faith. And um, I realize there are a thousand things I could say. I, I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, but I want to stimulate your imaginations if, if uh, you'll allow me to do that. Um, I want to talk about some possible obstacles to childlike faith. Here's one, and this is a big one. It's misplaced confidence. Uh, I was thinking a lot about misplaced confidence because earlier this year I started reading a, a recent book that came out, I, and I'm going to get the, the author's name wrong. I just don't know how to pronounce her last name. It's, I think her name is Jean Twenge, or Twangy. I've heard it said numerous ways, and I hope that somewhere Jean Twenge is listening to this sermon and hears it and texts me and tells me what her pronunciation is. But in her book, Generations, I hope she's listening because I don't think she's a Christian, um, in her book, Generations, she talks about the millennial generation. These are my people, all right? I'm, I'm outing myself as a millennial. They are those who were born after 1980 and those who were born before 1994. And one of the things she says about millennials is that millennials objectively overmeasure their own abilities and their own giftings. Um, millennials objectively have skyrocketing self-confidence in a way that you can measure that they're over that they're overestimating it. And she she gives the story of why. She talks about how educators thought, well the thing we need to do more than anything else is we re need to really reinforce the self-conception of these students and if if everybody thinks really highly of themselves, if everybody is told they're really smart and they're really great and they're really funny and they're really intelligent, then they'll do better, they'll go farther, they'll make more money because that's what school is all about, right? Finding a way to make more money. And Twinge talks about how polling shows millennials have this radically elevated sense of, 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 of their own abilities and their, and their own gifts. The majority, and this is true, think about this for yourselves, the majority of millennial college students say they have above average intelligence. The majority think they have above average intelligence. Now, if you, I'm not a mathematician, okay? But we can't all have above average intelligence, okay? <laughs> Somebody's got to be in the bottom half of that. Um, it's just, you know, but the majority of my generation apparently thinks that, that uh, we, we really won the lottery of life. Our generation consistently overestimates objectively measurable information about ourselves. And, and Twinge also says if you line up a person's self-confidence next to their grades... If you line up a person's self-confidence next to their eventual incomes, she says there is no correlation between their high self-confidence and the outcomes. So you're telling people they are great does not make them great. Um, even though our society has spent decades building confidence into students, it turns out that confidence is not a good predictor of measurable outcomes. In fact, she points out the problem with this, and I love this because, again, it's coming from a non-Christian. I love hearing true things from non-Christians. She says that if we have unfounded self-confidence, then we will be less open to correction, and we may even stop growing or learning. We may even excuse our bad behavior and think that everyone else is the problem. Now, why am I, am I just taking an opportunity to take pot shots at millennials? No. 
I, I, the reason I do it is I want to illustrate this reality that misplaced confidence is extremely common. It's been instilled in us by previous generations, and it can be a huge obstacle to being corrected. In other words, if I might apply it to what we're talking about here tonight, misplaced confidence is an obstacle to coming to Jesus because we think we're better than we really are. We think, we think we're wonderful. We have misplaced confidence. And it's not just unique to millennials, right? It's a Gen X problem. It's a baby boomer problem. If we think that we are already great, we will be slow to come to God in humility. It's just the way things are. Now, on the other hand, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, the surest mark of true conversion is humility. He says, we must be willing to say to the Lord, I'm a sinner. Something is fundamentally wrong with me. I've done wrong. I've broken your law. I need to be born again. And if we won't say that, if we have misplaced self-confidence, then, um, then we're going to be too proud and we're going to be too unwilling to admit the sinfulness of our own hearts. And that's why Jesus calls us to childlike faith here. He's calling us to the thing that if we have it, we get out of our own way. There are other obstacles to childlike faith too. And I want to mention a couple of them because, because Ryle mentions them and I think they're very helpful. One example he gives is knowledge without love. He says, if we have knowledge without love, that can be an obstacle. He says, a person with great knowledge, but no love, will, they'll see their knowledge as a tool to be used against other people. They're, they'll see their knowledge as a lever to move other people and manipulate people and it's going to feed our pride. And so instead of seeing our knowledge as a blessing that, that we're meant to give to others, we see it as a way of controlling people. That's an obstacle, isn't it? If we have knowledge without love. Uh, another obstacle to childlike faith is a critical spirit. Uh, some of these we can relate to more than others, perhaps. But if we have a critical spirit, here's, here's one way that looks. It looks like being in the presence of other believers and we don't see the good God is doing in them, all we, all we do is pick them apart. All we do is see the problems. All we do is see something ugly. When God is actually working in this person and we aren't willing to see it, um, we'll see reasons to look down on others, to reject others, right? If we're so critical that, that, that we're just, we won't, we're almost becoming cynical, then, then we're going to struggle to hear truth from people that we think aren't worthy of us, right? If we aren't careful, this critical spirit turns into a cynical spirit, and then we just think darkly about everybody else, and we refuse to see any good taking place around us. A cynical attitude, a critical spirit, that is an obstacle to childlike faith. Cynicism and childlike faith... They're like oil and water. They can't go together at all. Now, you might think that means that Jesus rejects all the premises of the disciples' questions. You know, maybe he's trying to say, well, really, everyone is equal in the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't do that. He actually does affirm one of their base assumptions here. He seems to affirm that there is a such thing as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he doesn't just seem to. He does. Because he says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he doesn't shoot down the question. See, the irony, this is the irony though. The irony of being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is that the person who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven doesn't care that they're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
And the person who does care whether they are isn't the greatest. So the person who cares the most about the thing that they would have doesn't have that thing. And um, it reminds me of something that Guy Waters said in my uh, systematic theology class once at RTS. He said, and I know he got this from somebody else, but uh, I, I, I heard it from Guy, and so he's just going to forever be my source for this. He said, in the kingdom of God, all people are equally justified, but we are not all equally sanctified. All people are equally justified. We are not all equally sanctified. In other words, what he's saying is, in Christ, we are saved. If we put our faith in Jesus, if we rest in Jesus, then we are saved. And if the person next to us puts their faith in Jesus, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, they are saved the same amount, if you can be saved an amount, you, they are saved the same amount as me. But, and this is really important, there are Christians out there who are more like Jesus than me. There are Christians out there who are more holy than me. Uh, some people are further along in the Christian life than others. And I don't, I don't know if that sounds discouraging to you or if that sounds really encouraging, but I find it incredibly encouraging to think that there are people out there who are more holy than me. Um, I spend a lot of time with myself, and the thought that no one out there is more holy than me is the most depressing thought that I could possibly imagine. Um, I hope you feel the same way, right? There are, there are people out there that God has just gifted with great humility and humble reliance on Jesus. And, and, and I hope to, to one day be like that. And I hope we all aspire to that. But I just wonder, are there people in your life that you're willing to just pause for a moment? And if you think about it, you can think of people who are further along in the Christian life than you. Now, I recognize appearances can be deceiving. We don't always know people's hearts. Um, but you know what? We should be in the business of admiring other Christians. I think we're afraid to do it. I think we're afraid that there's something wrong with it. But we need to be in the business of charitably looking at and appreciating the good that God is doing in other Christians' lives. Um, one of the ways I do that is I read Christian biographies. Uh, I read biographies of missionaries, of ministers, of church fathers. I, I love reading about God's work in people's lives. That is one really great way to cultivate that attitude because it gets you into someone else's mind uh, when you are reading a biography. You imagine what it's like to be that person. Uh, it's a really great way of uh, building empathy, I guess. Um, but that, that's just one idea, right? That's, that's one way of being reminded that there really are those out there who are the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven. They're not more saved than you, but they are more holy than you. And we should have that increased hunger for holiness in our own lives as well. And that's what Jesus is pressing us toward in our second point here, a childlike answer. He's saying, you must become like a little child. You must become like a little child. Third, Jesus gives a stern warning. You see it in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus changes his emphasis. Instead of telling us to become like children, he talks to us about receiving a child. Uh, and he warns us about putting stumbling blocks in the way of a child. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6 again. He says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Um, don't you just love that that's the verse that our, our passage ends on, this inspirational moment for the day. Um, better to be thrown in the ocean with a, a millstone tied around your neck. Um, 
Notice who Jesus is talking about here. We need to, to be clear on this. This is one of Jesus's little ones that he's talking about. This is someone who could be literally a child, but who certainly has turned and become like a little child. He says that this child he's talking about is someone who believes in me. In other words, he's not talking about necessarily talking about just physical children. Instead, he is talking about anyone who is a follower of Jesus, right? Because this is someone who he says believes in me. In other words, Jesus is very defensive of the spiritual life of his followers, and he is extremely eager to protect them from being spiritually harmed. See, first he tells us to receive such a one, right? He's telling us that when you meet another believer, when you meet someone who follows Jesus, show hospitality, make them feel like they belong, make them feel like part of the community. That's the, that's the positive side of the command that he gives here. But he also gives this very serious prohibition here, something, something that we must not do. We must not, Jesus says, cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Right? The notion of causing to sin is it's important enough to Jesus that in essence he says it would be better to be killed than to do this to another believer. Does he have your attention? I mean, he's saying, he's saying you would be better off dead than to do this thing. So what's the thing he says we're better off dead than doing? Jesus is warning us about the sin of putting stumbling blocks in the way of, of other believers. And uh, apparently I'm relying a lot on J.C. Ryle this evening. But J.C. Ryle is very excellent at, at application. And one of the things Ryle says is that he, he mentions the ways we might be guilty of doing this. Listen to what Ryle says. He says, we put stumbling blocks in the way of men's souls whenever we do anything to keep them back from Christ or to turn them out of the way of salvation or to disgust them with true religion. We may do it directly by persecuting, ridiculing, opposing, or dissuading them from committed service of Christ. We may do it indirectly by living a life inconsistent with our religious profession and by making Christianity loathsome and distasteful by our own conduct. It is awful to think of the amount of harm that can be done by one person who claims to be a Christian but is inconsistent. They give a handle to the unbeliever. They supply the worldly with an excuse for remaining undecided. They check the inquirer after salvation. They discourage the saints. They are, in short, living sermons on behalf of the devil. There is no, no question how Ryle feels about someone who produces these kind of road stumbling blocks in front of people who are followers of Jesus. And Ryle gives an example from Scripture. He gives an example of someone who does this. And the example he gives is actually David. If you remember, David committed this sin against and with Bathsheba. And then Nathan confronts him. He says, you are the man. And specifically, though, Nathan says something else to David, and it's something that Ryle latches on to. Listen to what he says. He says, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. Specifically, this is what Ryle points at. He says, look at the impact that your inconsistent life has had. You made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. Another way of putting this is you created a stumbling block. 
David, your actions in this matter were a sermon from Satan. You were inconsistent with your profession. Being a follower of Jesus means turning and being converted in humility, coming to Christ and admitting our need, but also having fellowship with other Christians. So we never think that we're better than them. And we never think that we have superiority. It means relying solely on Jesus Christ and coming to him with childlike faith that is humble, that's lacking in sinful ambition, and that looks to Christ alone as the sole ground of the peace we have with God. Not to, not to pile it on, I, I don't really want to overstate things, but all of this also means it means caring enough about the faith and the spiritual life of other believers that we are driven by a concern that they be blessed, um, that they spiritually thrive. And if we look at everybody around us as a means to our own ends, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to keep asking the question, what are they doing for me? And if we say, well, I can't think of anything that person does for me, then we tend to throw them by the wayside. But if we look at that person and we say, how can I be a blessing to them? It changes. It radically transforms the way that we think about them. It, it makes us look at our life as, an, as a, a, a matter of service to these people instead of seeing them as a service to ourselves. And if we won't live like that, Jesus says, we become a hindrance. We become a stumbling block. We don't understand real discipleship. Are you more concerned about the spiritual lives of others than you are about your own well-being? You know, Paul, Paul says, I would be, I'm willing to be accursed if, if for the sake of my brothers. Are you, do you have that kind of attitude? Would you be willing to be accursed so that you could be a blessing to other people if that's what it came to? I mentioned when we started that uh, as an atheist, I had these assumptions about the, the Gospels and about the way they were written. And specifically, I was sure that they were written to accrue power and authority for the apostles. And this, pack, this passage just throws a wet blanket on that, right? They, but here's the thing. They start off thinking that Jesus might be their ticket to power. So that's the interesting part. I, atheist Adam was almost right because <laughs> it's where they started, right? Matthew includes it in this passage today as an admission of that. It's an admission from Matthew that, yes, we were interested in having power. We were interested in, in getting authority. That, that was on our minds when we started following Jesus. But this passage is also them learning from Jesus the better way, that anyone who would follow Jesus is in fact called to give that up and die to it and put away selfish and sinful ambition. And we, we actually see five verses earlier than this. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he showed them that he would do this, that he would put away his, his ambition, that he would put away any, any possibility of himself going first because in Matthew 17, 22, Jesus says to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus first. Jesus teaches about and Jesus practices the very thing that he calls us as Christians to. And yes, what he calls church leaders to, you before me, self-sacrifice, costly love. Our, our, our Savior led, but, but when Jesus led, he did lead in weakness. He led self-sacrificially. He was at the front of the procession 
but he wasn't leading it in glory. Instead, he was leading with a cross on his back and a crown of thorns on his head. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you use the teaching of Jesus today to press us toward humility and to press us toward dependence and toward childlike faith? Would you also give us a desire and a healthy ambition to be of service to you and your kingdom? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.